This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started back in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. In the second year of what's becoming a tradition here on Think Again, this is a mixtape of some of my favorite moments from the past year's shows. Things that stuck with me because I thought they were funny or especially wise, or simply because of the energy of the conversation. Daniel Dennett is one of the foremost living philosophers of mind. He's also a really funny and jolly guy with a long flowing beard, which encourages me that philosophy is still very much alive, loud and proud in 2017. Welcome to Think Again, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Um, can you uh, can you summarize your 413-page, extremely comprehensive book? In uh, no, I mean, what? How would you describe the central premise of what what you're trying to argue here, which I know gathers decades of work on your part? The central premise, I guess, could be summarized as: if you really want to understand what consciousness is and what it can do what a human mind is, you have to see how it got that way. Right. You have to understand what it came from. You have to understand how it got designed, because there's simply no question about it. It is just loaded with fabulous design. Ideas are designed, words are designed, theories are designed. Some of it is obviously designed, and we know who designed it. We know that, that you know, Newton and Leibniz designed calculus. There's a few other great thinking tools. We know who the authors are, but most of the great thinking tools were not designed by anybody. They were designed by cultural evolution. And cultural evolution can only exist when you have human beings that can spread culture. So first you've got to evolve people. Right. Then you've got to evolve language and the rest of culture. Then you can start having intelligent design namely small i, small d, intelligent designers. Right. People like Jane Austen and William Shakespeare and Ada Lovelace and the other great designers. And you devote a, like a not inconsiderable amount of time to, to talking about how this word design, you're comfortable with it in the context of evolution as well, not just in terms of yeah. intelligent design, but there's unintelligent design in the sense of things yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, I think there there are some of my uh, friends and colleagues in evolution who deplore. I hope they'll give it up, and I think I've done a sufficient <laughs> defense. Who deplore my use of design talk, because I think I'm giving too big a a sop to the intelligent design capital I capital D gang, but not at all. I think the wise way to think about nature is. Don't deny the design of nature. It's fantastic. It's just breathtakingly clever. Right. As Francis Crick once said, Orgel's second rule, evolution is cleverer than you are. And so it is. Fabulous products, brilliantly designed right. by a process which isn't brilliant at all, which has no foresight, no intention, no consciousness, no goals. And yet, this cranking, mechanical, motiveless process over time, generates better and better and better and better and better and better things for all kinds of functions. And yeah. what we are, as we sit here, you sit there and there's more than a trillion cells, more than a trillion. Right. Each one of those is just jam-packed with well-designed little elements. Stunning. The whole thing together is designed to perform all sorts of functions. Yeah. And one of the real mis amazing things is that nine out of 10 of the cells in your clothes right now right. are not human cells. They are symbiont visitors. They are living <laughs> in you the way, the way some birds live in cliff faces and uh, they, they're, they're hitchhikers. Right. So there's all of this design whole communities of designed entities, made of designed entities, made of designed entities. Yeah. Robots made of robots made of robots made of robots. That's the hard bit though for, you know, the average person, I guess, to wrap their mind around the the the, the what you call I think Darwin's strange inversion, the no. the way that like how something that can be called design can emerge from the random banging against each other of things and then yeah. ultimately like the I, I it was useful to me like you talked about inanimate objects in the initial sort of emptiness <laughs> um uh banging against each other and and and, and stability being the first kind of principle of this kind of design, what yeah. what combinations persist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before there was a differential replication or reproduction, there was differential persistence. Right. Some things just hung around for longer than others. And hanging around for longer than other things is at least gives you the opportunity to pick up something new, a new a new scratch on the surface, a new bump, a right. new something. And ninety-nine times out of a hundred it won't do you any good if what you want to do is hang around longer. But sometimes it does. Right. And so it goes. That isn't yet natural selection. It's Darwin-esque. It has some of the features of natural selection, and we gradually get from this churning stew of lifeless cycles, we get the accumulation of things that happen to eventually to be capable actually of making copies of themselves. Right. Right. And then we're off to the races. <laughs> and so thinking through then, like, I mean, having sort of digested to whatever extent I was able to from reading your book, that your explanation of what is going on with human minds and what distinguishes them from those of other creatures, I came up with a kind of tweak to uh, Descartes' famous formulation, cogito ergo sum, which I can't do in Latin, but I want to run it by you and you tell me how close it is to what you're saying. 
I explain myself to others and therefore I think that I am. Is that sort of on the right track? It is, it is <laughs> uh, because if there weren't others, right. the conditions for human consciousness, the preconditions for human consciousness wouldn't really exist. Right. Part of human consciousness is distinguishing yourself from others. This, not just distinguishing yourself from that tree over there or the rock or the river, right. but distinguishing yourself from other agents, whether it's the bear that might eat you or the uh, rabbit that might be your supper or the person who might be able to give you the answer to a question you need answering. And right. so the exchange of information and the exploitation of information is what life is all about. Right. And what's happened is that in one species, we have carried this to sort of recursively high degrees, where we now, as the saying goes, anything you can do, I can do meta. <laughs> um, we can think about our thinking, and we can think about thinking about our thinking, and we can have thinking tools that help us think about our thinking tools, and so forth. Yeah. And if we didn't have all those tools, the, our capacity to reflect indefinitely is a very special capacity. And it's not one that just comes with being a sentient organism. Architecture critic Sarah Goldhagen argues from cognitive science that the buildings we live and work in are mostly terrible for humans and that we deserve much better. So the first one is Jeffrey Sachs, and he's at Columbia. I believe he's a sociologist, and this... He's an economist. Oh, oops. That's okay. okay. <laughs> um, Jeffrey Sachs is an economist, perhaps, um, at Columbia, and this video is titled... America's Next Moonshot Cut Poverty 50% by 2030. Okay. All right. The best thing a society can do is set a bold goal and think about how to achieve it and go for it. I just love that idea of governance. Of course, I grew up with it. President Kennedy, in my youth, said to the Congress, he said, I believe that America should adopt the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. President Kennedy said, we have a big goal, let's go to the moon and back, and let's do it this decade. And you know, the engineers and the scientists said, that's pretty cool. And the Congress said, that's something good for us to invest in. And within the decade, of course, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon we had a transformation of space science, of communications technology, of semiconductor capacity, of computation that were all spin-offs of that wonderful adventure. Now I know that when President Kennedy said that, there was no plan for how to do it. I believe we absolutely should have such bold goals for our country. By 2030, let's cut the poverty at least by half. By 2030, let's cut the inequality in our country decisively so it's like the Northern European countries, not like this god-awful inequality that we have in the United States. By 2030, let's move decisively to renewable energy. These are all achievable goals. If you can land a man on the moon 
between May 1961 and the summer of 1969, don't tell me we can't transform our energy system to save the planet. Of course we can. Big ideas, optimistic ideas that are then tethered to goals right. is precisely what I'm trying to get at, as, uh, precisely. So all the goals that he let out, cut poverty by 50% by right. 2030, I mean, those are, those are noble goals. I would add to those goals an improvement in the built environment for everyday people by, we can certainly do it by 2030. I mean, people are building every day. Right. They can build a different way. They can start to rethink it from what the ground would, up. You know, so we've got these cities like Dubai that people just build in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And so those obviously present rare opportunities to like get it right mm -hmm. this time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but like with these places where most of us live, you know, Tokyo, Paris, yep. uh, New York, what would an architectural, you know, built environment moonshot look like? I mean, what's possible, uh, mm -hmm. say, if we wanted to be really optimistic? Well, I mean, you could talk about the design elements of that, and you can talk about the policy elements of that. The okay. policy elements of that are building codes, zoning codes, all sorts of legislative things need to re-examine whether what they're doing is supporting human experience right. or hurting it. Um, and that's not a lens through which these codes are written, and they have a lot of influence on the way that things are built and designed. Right. Encouraging policymakers to recognize the value in the built environment and to push for better design. I mean, there are mayors out there, Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, so those are some policy considerations. You can encourage the manufacturers of materials through various financial incentives and so on to create better materials right. um, that that support human experience in a richer way. Okay, so those are some policy ideas. And then the design ideas, one of them is really quite simple, which is that architects are trained, you know, they're really trained to think about form. Uh, right. sort of large-scale aggregate form and okay. how a building looks and spaces. And then they learn other things about spatial sequence. They certainly do. But the determination of what materials a building is going to be constructed with, what spaces are, how really are going to be configured and so on, that comes way down the line. And one of the things that my research really brought home to me was how much more important the surfaces that we live in are and right. the materials that we live in are to our emotional connections to places, to our the formation of memories that we have to places, then I think even some designers really recognize and understand. Right. Um, when you say surfaces, do, are you referring specifically to like the tactile and patterned quality of them are just like? Uh, the tactile quality, the pattern quality of them, the reflective quality of them, the acoustical properties mm -hmm. that they bring. I mean, this is one of the, the acoustics is actually one of the problems with, let's say, simulated wood versus real wood. Okay. Okay, so if you think about like, um, I don't know, particle board or something with a veneer of wood over it. Right. 
and then you take that same kind of wood and you take a block of wood, huh. they'll have completely different tactile and acoustical properties. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm thinking, you know, it's occurring to me that like in wood, the human voice resonates in a very warmer Correct. sort of... And so in a way, we are diminished as people if we're in an environment that acoustically damps us down. Completely, completely. Yeah. And I mean, another one of the implications of the book is that the ways that people think about and the ways that some designers design the built environment is far, far too focused on the visual alone. Right. And in fact, I mean, there's, we, we are never using just one sensory portal. And so it just doesn't cut it to have a wood, even the best simulation of wood on the planet, if you don't have all those other things, the way it feels, the way it touches, the way it sounds, mm. things like that, because these have an impact on us, even though we don't, we're not really most of the time aware of it. You, you gave an example of like a, a, the London, is it a pavilion or something that they oh, do? Oh, the Serpentine Pavilion. Yeah, that's just that like scary just, building. Like the, <laughs> totally different from what the architect wanted it to be. Right. But he do, didn't know these things. So, I mean, yes, exactly. Um, many designers, and there are market reasons for this, which are completely comprehensible. Mm -hmm. But if we problematize them, I think we can begin to change them. They're trained to focus first on form, and they're also, because design is often sort of has, particularly design of buildings, has a little bit of a foot, or let's say half a foot, or a tap of a foot <laughs> in technology and engineering and things right. like that, but the other foot, and in fact two feet very often, firmly based in the humanities. Mm -hmm. They don't have access to the information that would help them to in design more environmentally sensitive spaces. Right. That's one thing. The second thing is that the influence of photography on the market for design mm. is really huge and photography only shows you your visual and gotcha. often at a totally different scale your visual experience or one shot at one time of day of your visual experience of right. a certain building. And so there are a lot of things that inadvertently discourage architects right. from focusing on the human experience. The third is that because it has one foot or two feet in the humanities, is that human experience is seen to be subjective. Right. Like, you can't really talk about that. You know, isn't it all just subjective? And that's one of the things I do in the book is I reframe human experience as cognition. Right. Uh, now, we know a ton about cognition. You know, we may not be able to talk about human experience, but what we certainly can talk about is cognition, and we know a ton about it. What's interesting is, you know, so visually we do, uh, our, our, our minds have a need, uh, as you talk about in the book, for, you know, we want to be stimulated. We want the visual environment and yeah. the tactile envir environment to be interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if there are certain kind of universal principles, right? Right. Like we want a cozy space alternating mm -hmm. with a communal space or right. whatever, then certain elements of architecture from that standpoint might, I'm not saying that like all buildings would be the same, but might get somewhat standardized. Mm -hmm. If architects are thinking about standing out and always doing something different, you know, there may be certain things that it's good to do the same way roughly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, there. this is a question I struggled with a lot okay. in the book, and particularly when I would talk to my ideas with designers, architects, landscape architects, whatever, they would be like, oh, whoa, you're going to tell me what to do, and that's <laughs> not good at all. I really, that's bad. I don't want to go there, right? There is such latitude in right. the principles that I'm laying out that it's not, it should be liberating in a way. Right. <laughs> not constraining, absolutely. I mean, there are certain like dumb things you shouldn't do, right? right? Like you shouldn't, if you want a pavilion that makes people feel warm and cozy and like amorous toward one another or something, you shouldn't design it with sharp angles and red floors and red right, ceilings because right, right. that's a mistake, right? But the mistakes are a lot less important than just understanding the principles. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about the use of natural light right. and the use of this principle of patterned complexity. Well, right. you know, Architects deal with patterns all the time. They have to, right? And so the question is, what kind of pattern do they use? And what kind of complexity do they introduce to that in that pattern, both visually and over the course of the day as the light changes and so on and so forth? So I don't see these as restrictive principles There's a at lot all. of freedom within There's whatever the constraints might be. Yes. So we won't all end up in those future environments that you see in sci-fi movies of enlightened <laughs> societies where it's always like a white round bubble. Right, right. right. no, no, we, we couldn't yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, we, we wouldn't tolerate it, would we? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> um, all right, so let's see. Let's see. I had a wonderful time talking to British novelist Ian McEwen nerding out about Hamlet, Nabokov, and McEwen's own writing process. Here he reads a passage from his wonderful book, Nutshell, which is a wickedly funny retelling of Hamlet, and then surprises the heck out of me by telling me, well, you'll see. But lately, don't ask why, I've no taste for comedy. No inclination to exercise even if I had the space, or to delight in fire or earth, in words that once revealed a golden world of majestical stars, the beauty of poetic apprehension, the infinite joy of reason. These admirable radio talks and bulletins, the excellent podcasts that move me, seem at best hot air, at worst a vaporous stench. The brave polity I'm soon to join, the noble congregation of humanity, its customs, gods and angels, its fiery ideas and brilliant ferment no longer thrill me. A weight bears down heavily on the canopy that wraps my little frame. There's hardly enough of me to form one small animal, still less to express a man. My disposition is to stillborn sterility, then to dust. This is the only time, it's, it's interesting, no one else has asked me to read that. Uh, it's the only time when I really narrowed in on a famous piece of Shakespearean prose, because actually it's, you know, what a piece of work is a man, it's not, it's not uh, it doesn't necessarily scan in iambics. Um, and I tried to fit every single word of that speech and turn it around into that prose. Right, right. So I, the I had excellent. the passage before me and I just put a pencil mark through each, <laughs> each you know, significant word. 
And yeah, I was wondering mm. about you know that about sort of your relationship to Hamlet as you wrote this, and were there times when you felt hemmed in by the narrative, or you know, and and mm. like, oh, I'm supposed to do this now, and wait a minute, mm. I refuse to do that, or how did you relate to Hamlet as you wrote this? I've always been close to that play anyway, and I recently reread it, and it it was there from the start. I I don't think I even took a conscious decision to tell the plot of Hamlet through, through the mouth of a fetus. Oh, really? It was just on my mind, and huh. before I even knew it, it had penetrated the whole enterprise. Oh, for real? So yeah. you started writing this book, and then how far in were you when you realized Hamlet was there? Oh, a couple of months. Wow. I had the first line, so here I am upside down in a woman, and <laughs> thought, hmm, I could do something with that. Interesting. I wanted to talk to you about artifice a little bit and the, this idea that like all good stories have already been written, mm. like from the standpoint of a novelist mm. in terms of plotting, like when you're coming up with a plot, mm. does that ring true to you? Do you believe that, that, that basically all the good plots have been written and everything is a variation on them? No, I don't. I mean, it's rather like you'd think there'd be no room left for any more tunes, you know, 12 notes right. on, on a, on a right. chromatic scale. And yet, amazingly, <laughs> I know there are books saying there are basically only seven plots or someone's even proposed that there are only two plots. But this is a kind of a conceptual reasoning that doesn't really help us with individual plots. Mine emerge rather than are, are mapped out. And they tend to emerge through the exercise of character uh, and situation. Once the thing is set up, a plot follows. Does Here the, I had no problem with a plot because you know there, there was Hamlet. But of course, with the fetus, somewhat different. The amount of agency he has is down to two or three things. One is he can kick his mother awake in the middle of the night <laughs> right. so that she turns on the radio. He can attempt to strangle himself with the umbilical cord, as I said, and he can get born. He does that, uh, yes. which, he, <laughs> which he has to do at the end to at least make a gesture towards uh, revenge. Right. Okay, so I mean, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask about, I, one of my great pleasures when I was 23 or something was reading Nabokov. I read mm -hmm. straight through most of his books. And I have to say that reading this book sparked a similar pleasure. That same, the same playful humor, the same kind of ability to tell a gripping tale and at the same time let the seams show. I mean, yeah. this is, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know, like. Well, I'm flattered by that, uh, of course. Uh, it's true that Nabokov is the supreme master of the verbal surface as well as the moral implications and the curiousness of, of the story he's telling. There are one, I mean, he is the ultimate stylist, I think. I mean, and, but I, I would also name Updike, John Updike, in mm. there too, and Saul Bellow to that extent. In many ways, that kind of novel writing has faded from us. What we tend to get is a highly subjective outpouring onto the page with little right. attention to the delight in the sentences. Because uh, I feel yeah, like there's a drive toward authenticity. There's this hunger for immediacy and authenticity or whatever as a fashion or something or mm. just a movement or whatever it is that, that has happened in, I think it, in yeah. literature, but that rejected. Yeah. I mean, Nabokov himself was always getting critiqued for being too artificial somehow. Yeah. But Updike I think that too. misses the point. Like, I saw reviews of Updike's work saying it was too good, the prose is too good, you can't write novels <laughs> like this. The prose can never be too good. Wow. So, uh, yeah.
Alison Gopnik is a prominent child psychologist who refreshingly argues that children should mostly just be left to explore and grow up without all this parenting parents keep doing. Here, also refreshing, she's disagreeing with another great mind, Steven Pinker. I think that the arguments that once we have super intelligent computers and robots, they will inevitably want to take over and do away with us, comes from Prometheus and Pandora myths. It's based on confusing the idea of high intelligence with megalomaniacal goals. I think it's a projection of alpha male psychology onto the very concept of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to solve problems, to achieve goals. It doesn't tell you what those goals are, and there's no reason to think that just the concentrated analytic ability to solve goals is going to mean that one of those goals is going to be to subjugate humanity or to achieve unlimited power. It just so happens that the intelligence that we're most familiar with, namely ours, is a product of the Darwinian process of natural selection, which is an inherently competitive process, uh, which means that uh, a lot of the organisms that are highly intelligent also have a craving for power and, uh, and an ability to, to be utterly callous to those who stand in their way. If we create intelligence, uh, that's intelligent design. I mean, our intelligent design uh, creating something, and unless we program it with the goal of subjugating uh, less intelligent beings, there's no reason to think that it will naturally evolve in that direction. Uh, and we know, by the way, that it's possible to have high intelligence without megalomaniacal or uh, homicidal or genocidal tendencies, because we do know that there is a highly advanced form of intelligence that tends not to have that uh, desire, and they're called women. Well, I. I tend to agree with the idea that our fear of artificial intelligence is, is sort of irrational. I think it doesn't come maybe quite so much from megalomania as from the fact that anything that reaches the boundaries between the human and the inhuman is disturbing to us. So there's the famous uncanny valley when we see faces that look kind of almost human but not quite. Right. That's creepy. Or invasion that's, of the body snatch. Yeah, there's something about that that's always bothered us. I think rather than thinking about Pandora, I'd think about the golem, right? The golem is a great mythology mm -hmm. about what happens when something that isn't human takes on human form, or Frankenstein. Those happened long before we had any ability to understand artificial intelligence. And interestingly, I can't think of any myth that goes the other way around, where something that's not human that takes on human forms is benign and benevolent and a <laughs> right. helper, right? right? I think uh, Steve is right that that's part of what's happening. I would. Uh, demure from the idea that the most intelligent creatures that we know are the alpha males, though, or even the women. The most intelligent creatures we know unquestionably are children. And in fact, the kind of intelligence that's most important is this kind of creative, imaginative intelligence that we mm. see most characteristically in children, exactly because they're not trying to rule the world, exactly because they're not being megalomaniacs. They're not only not being megalomaniacs, they can't even get their shoes tied and get out to right. daycare in the morning. So if you look at what AI actually can do and what AI systems can do, it's still true that they're very good at extracting patterns from data in the world. And they're very good at solving a specific problem if you give them a specific problem. What every three-year-old can do, and we have not, we're not even, don't even have a clue of understanding how an artificial system could do, is to think up a new solution. Think up an idea that nobody's ever had before. Think up right. a counterfactual. And 
at the moment, the only way we can get machines to do that is either they just generate random variation, which isn't going to be relevant, or they stick to the things that have worked in the past. Being able to think of something that's genuinely new and genuinely relevant to uh, a problem or an idea, that's something that every three-year-old does. In fact, we have data that suggests that three-year-olds, four-year-olds do it better than undergraduates or adults do it. And we have no idea how to make get an artificial system that can do that. Now, having said that, we do know very much how to create a real intelligent system. We've all done it, and it's a lot more fun than actually having to get a computer science degree because, of course, we know that every one of those child children is a real physical intelligent system. So what, whatever <laughs> it is that makes them intelligent, there are real physical systems that are intelligent. And as a scientist, I sort of have faith that at some point we'll understand how that works. But the kinds of systems that we have now that are leading to the new spring of artificial intelligence aren't even in the same ballpark. They're not even doing the same kinds of things as those children are doing. So it's still, is that still considered, I mean, you don't work directly on artificial intelligence, I guess, or do you? I collaborate. I actually collaborate with people who do things in machine, in machine learning. And one of the things that we've done is try and see what kind of systems would you need to design that could do the same things as children could do, and vice versa. One of the main things that we've done over the last 15 years is to show that very young children are implicitly, unconsciously, using a lot of the same techniques that machine learning systems use. Hmm. But the way that we've been able to show that is by, for example, one of the things that we can train a computer to do and that children do spontaneously is take a particular pattern of data, for example, and find the pattern in that data. That's right. something that, uh, that's something a that- A pre-existing pattern that we know that they're looking exactly. for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in our experiments, what we do is give the children a pattern that we know means something and then see if they can infer something about what that pattern means. And the children are amazingly good at doing that. Right. What the children can do that we don't really understand and we don't know how to simulate in a computer is to look at that pattern and think of a solution or an idea that none of us have ever thought of before. And so, that's something that we don't really understand. So that's still considered like a real paradigm shift type of change right. in artificial intelligence if, if and when that happens. If and when that happens. Yeah. Although even then, I, I don't think there's any particular reason to believe that that would lead them to want to be our overlords. But we're very far from even that degree of intelligence. I, I guess what, what is potentially frightening is that you have a thing which may be autonomous, may be made autonomous, right? May be able to make its own decisions and so forth. And Pinker says, well, we if we design it in a certain way, then it won't want to, why would it want to be our overlord? Right. But there are a lot of people in the world. There are a lot of scientists in the world. There are a lot of like hack technologists in the world. Well, Anyone can make. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> and, and here I agree with people like my colleague Stuart Russell, you know, the problem isn't artificial intelligence, it's natural stupidity. <laughs> so we have a lot of stupid technology and we have stupid, powerful technology that could create really giant disasters. You know, the fact that we have weapons that could destroy the world already is worrying enough. The fact that they could be triggered by an algorithm is even more worrying. So I think we're quite right to worry and put work into trying to make sure that we have the right kind of controls over those systems. But I don't think it really has to do with how intelligent they are. It's dangerous and scary enough, in fact, maybe even scarier if they're making those decisions stupidly than if they're making them intelligently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think once the technology's out there, the controls are gonna be hard. Because people can take it and reverse engineer it and yeah. do what well, they like with but it. But as I say, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can put in a computer virus that can shut down a 
reactor plant now. You don't need to have anything very smart to be able to be extremely destructive. That's true. Yeah, we're already, we're already there. Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for studying how memory works in the brain. He's also in that rare group of thinkers who are trying to bridge the gap between what C.P. Snow once called the two cultures of the sciences and the humanities. Kandel was a child when Hitler occupied his native Vienna, so he has a thing or two to say about the nature of evil. This is Harvard psychologist Susan David on the psychology of defeating fear low self-esteem, and hate live in the mind. When we have politicians who are effectively demagogues, who are inspiring fear in us, that fear leads to very particular and relatively predictable responses. When we are fearful, there is this idea in psychological research of mortality salience, that when our mortality is threatened, when someone says, oh, this group of people is out to get you, and we feel that we are actively being threatened, we are more likely to stereotype, we are more likely to respond to messages that we hear time and time again, even if they are against our values as somehow making sense to us. How do we protect ourselves against this? Daniel Kahneman describes system one thinking and system two thinking. System one thinking is the intuitive response that can sometimes arise out of fear. System two is the deliberate, thoughtful examination of what is this person saying? Is it aligned with how I really want to be? When we are able to step back from our fear, we are able to come to a place where we are ultimately protected from the demagoguery message. Okay, so we're talking about demagoguery and fear, and uh, I guess an immediate point of reference in America in 2016 leaps to all of our minds immediately? Yes. <laughs> uh, I have had earlier experiences like this. Oh, I would like to hear um, about that, yes. I'm Jewish, and I was born in Vienna, Austria. And when I was nine years old, right. Hitler marched into Austria and was received by the Viennese in Vienna, where I was living, with open arms. And immediately, people who had been our friends turned away from us and essentially became our enemies. And that's because Hitler had fantastic anti-Semitic propaganda. And he got this propaganda in part from an earlier Viennese. Hitler was in Vienna in 1906, 1910. And the mayor of Vienna at that time was a guy called Karl Luega. And Luega was a terrific orator a tremendous campaigner. He wasn't even all that anti-Semitic. He had Jewish friends. He would say, I determine who's a Jew. But he had a fantastic way of saying, the reason you don't have any money is because the Jews are taking it away from you. So it scared the hell out of people, particularly those that didn't have jobs, convincing them 
that the Jews, by charging high prices, by creating works of art that are expensive, etc., God knows how many reasons, were destroying the quality of their life. So he created this environment of fear to which people responded. And Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, I learned more from Lorega how to run a campaign than anybody else. And fear is, of course, a traditional way in which people build up opposition to one force in order to get support for another. And it, it, I found it very hard for the longest time to understand how people can listen to Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven one day and beat up the Jews the next. Um, I, I wonder what that did you know, for you, to you, in terms of your thinking about humans at that early age to see that transition happen almost overnight. Like, do you, do you have conscious memories of, of that? Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. My brother had built a shortwave radio set and we were listening to it as Hitler marched into Vienna. And in Heldenplatz, 200,000 people wow. came out and cheered him like mad. No, it dominated the scene. I walked the streets two days later, and a classmate of mine came up to me and said, Kandel, I'm never to speak to you again. That was horrible. Uh, and and then you ask yourself the question, what is it that separates the good guys from the bad guys? And you come to the conclusion, I think the current campaign in the United States illustrates that that every one of us is capable of good and of evil. Reinhold Niebuhr once said, the capability of people for good makes democracy desirable. Their capability for evil makes democracy necessary. In addition to being in the club of guests who I wish could be my surrogate grandparent or mentor, Alan Alda taught me something about interviewing. Since reading his book and talking to him, I don't rely on notes anymore. I prepare and then just try to be present with my guest. Yeah, I, I have to say one thing that really caught me, my attention in your book was when you talked about doing Scientific American Frontiers, the yeah. show where you interview scientists, and how in the early episodes you went in with a list of questions and that, or maybe the first episode only, or well, what, like? No, for a while I did it, for maybe uh, a year of the 11 years. I really can't remember, but at a certain point I realized going in with a list of questions was really not exercising my own curiosity. And it wasn't getting the stuff out of them that was most interesting, which was their personal connection to their own science. They, if I came in with a list of questions, tell me about how this machine works. Right. Then they tell me about the machine. They don't tell me about the trouble they had making the machine. Right. The, the hope they had to look into the innards of nature and that kind of thing. The, the, the excitement of it wasn't as great when it was mechanical and, and just I ask and you answer. But when it was an interaction between us, it was exciting. And that's the only reason, I think, to do an, any kind of interview. And so often it's just a series of like canned questions. It's, it's, it, the questions really become softballs so you can hit it out of the park with your lecture. Right. You know, but right, right. I'd rather play ping pong where it goes back and forth and you don't know where it's going to go. You really have no idea. And that's kind of fun to listen to. It's more spontaneous. I think it's really brave as well. I mean, I've been doing this show. This show is coming up on its 100th episode. And oh. I'm still, as you can see here, uh, I've got a list of bullet points. But, I, but I, I'm tempted to, to, to start ditching it as well. You know, you know something funny happened. <laughs> since, I, since the book is about to come out and I'm, I'm being interviewed a lot, three people in a row who were interviewing me said, 
I'm taking a cue from your book, and I'm not going to ask you any, I don't have a list of questions. Really? And it was just a pure conversation. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that to me. Not only was the conversation more fluid and spontaneous, something happened to me as the person being interviewed. I opened up in a way I don't often do. I didn't give them any stock answers, things I'd said before. I don't try to give stock answers, but you can't help it when you when you talk about the right. same thing over and over. Right, right, right. But I was, it changed the way I responded to them. And that's, that's what I found happening with the scientists when I interviewed them. You know what, Alan? I'm going to do it. I, I, oh, my God. Is, he's closing I'm, the I'm lid closing on his computer. the laptop. I'm going to do oh, it. you're I'm, number four now. This we're flying <laughs> solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so your book... Your book is about um, is about communication, and it's about basically how people don't really connect as much as they ought to, and sort of the way that see without my without well, my bullet know, points, okay. I'm completely okay. lost. Let me I don't give know you, what to do. I know like tips, but let me give you a tip. <laughs> Just keep looking at my face. All right. <laughs> you, when you're thinking of the question, you tend to look down away from me. And if you want to get something out of me, look at me, and you'll take me in, and it'll change you, and it'll make the question. Spontaneous, it won't be so perfectly formed, but it'll be what you want to know. You That's know? a good point. Yeah, I I, um, I went to acting school many years ago, and you talk a lot about Viola Spolin's exercises. Mm -hmm. um, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about how those, why those have been helpful. Well, to they were important years. to me as an actor, and it, the funny thing was, I found that they changed me as a person too. Right. I was, I've always had a little uh, social anxiety. Uh, I'm not sure why. I actually found out lately that I, I have face blindness, and I don't, I can't recognize people's faces. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, once I couldn't remember my daughter's face. Twice I couldn't remember her face. Proposagnosia, I Pro, guess. Pro, Prosopagnosia. Yeah yeah. 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 Right. I think that made me anxious, like at cocktail parties. I, I don't know if I'm talking to somebody who I know already. Or, right. So. I've always been, I've always had this social anxiety, and I found once I improvised, once I learned from Viola Spolin's book, actually I worked with her son and with Viola, I learned that there really aren't any mistakes. Right. The mistake is just the thing that gets you to the next thing. Hmm. And it didn't bother me that I didn't recognize the people so much. Didn't, I didn't get so anxious with other people. I knew I could get by just by staying in the present moment and engaging the other person in the present moment. Nice. And that, that changed everything for me. And then I began to realize as I interviewed people, and I interviewed hundreds of them, I saw that I was getting connected to them through this, these techniques of improvisation, which basically are just connecting to the other person, right. being, being in sync with them, right. you know? And, and then I realized that it worked not just with the scientists I was interviewing, but it worked with everybody. One scientist said to me, this training has saved my marriage. So I realized I had, I had something to write about that was kind of important, that if we all can connect like this, we can work on marriages and parents and children, bosses and employees, just about everybody. I was thinking about how, you know, years ago when I came to New York, like age 18, I was, I think, very, very open to everything and everyone around me. I mean, I had social anxiety as well. I didn't really know, like when people said, what's up? 
You know, I didn't know what to do. Like, I literally would freeze and be <laughs> oh, like, that's well, I, um, Let's I, I see. recently have, yeah, and start <laughs> that's scanning, great. right? I didn't know how to just say what's up, right? But now I know that. But, um, yeah. but, you know, I've been living in New York for 25 years. And, I mean, cities are one thing, adulthood, too. I feel like they close you down a little bit. Like, it's a, like I recall being on the subway when I was, you know, early on in New York and I just had a tendency to kind of look at and maybe into the eyes of everyone around me. Yeah. And when and a guy at one point was like, "What the f you looking at?" You know, yeah, like I right had that same experience. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I think there's a training in improvisation can get you in trouble. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I used to sit on park benches talking to people who probably had schizophrenia, like who would tell me about uh, elaborate theories and such. And, and you'd just say, oh, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's all good. I, I, I think it is, but like you get older though and you also sort of are like, I guess what I'm saying is like, whatever you're trying to do, you are, you are, you are trying to balance, I think, openness and self-protection, right? Yeah, you, you have to take care of yourself. There's no doubt about that. And, and just naive openness is no good. But we protect ourselves so much that we don't pay attention. Right. And I've started since I have been working on this book, and I got better at connecting and communicating while I was working on the book hmm. because I paid so much attention to the process. Yeah. And I studied research, and I called on my past experience as an actor and an improviser and that kind of thing. But what I learned to do is read people's faces, who I people I haven't, I've never met, I've never seen them before. I passed them in the street or. Hmm. I'm, paying a bill at a cashier in a, at a diner. Right. And I, I try to figure out what they're feeling, what they're thinking. And even more than that, in, in the simplest possible way, I notice the color of their eyes, the shape of their eyebrows. Yeah. You know, I noticed early on that you 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 have you need a shave. <laughs> well, this is probably th a no, style. Th this it's is my style. style. Yeah, yeah. The audience can't see it, but I have a very cool two-day. How do you keep here. it that length? I've always wondered. Well, I, I learned a couple of years ago that you that if you get like one of those electric razors yeah. uh, on the lowest setting, they used to bug me because they don't give you a clean shave. Oh, so this way you get to keep it that this way. This way yeah. you get it this way. I yeah. kept, I had it a little bit like that in MASH for 11 years. <laughs> but I, I would, uh, I just let it grow to a certain length and then... Now the war is over, so you yeah, don't and I'm the, Yeah, I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> and that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you are enjoying what you hear, if you've been with us for a long time, or if you're new to the show and you think that it is your kind of thing, please go to iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever you're listening to us on, whichever app or interface, and rate and or review the show. Um, it really helps other people find us. We'll be back next week with another mixtape of the greatest hits from the past year. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. 
Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.